and welcome to the 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at 21st Folio, that's 21STFOLIO, or online at 21stfolio.com, that's 21STFOLIO.com. I'm your host, Alex Heaney, the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row, and you can find me on Twitter at BWESTCINEAST, that's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. Before we get started, uh, let me apologize for the long and unexpected hiatus we had to take over the summer. Uh, we were traveling, and there were some very busy schedules, and then finally we had some disastrous technical difficulties. We lost a great interview we did with... Sh- Santa Cruz Shakespeare's artistic director, and we're still in the process of editing our King Lear episode about Jonathan Price's Lear, which was another casualty of our editor's recent computer failure. Anyway, we'll be rolling out new episodes throughout the fall, but we'll be doing them at a slightly slower rate. We asked listeners for feedback and got the impression that we were putting episodes out a bit too much, too quickly, and it was hard to keep up. On today's episode, I'll be talking to Argentine director Matthias Pinheiro about his latest film, Hermia and Helena. Helena which is more inspired by than loosely based on A Midsummer Night's Dream. Hermia and Helena is Pinheiro's English-language debut, and it's the fourth film in his Shakespeare cycle, which he started with the short Rosalinda in 2011, which was based on As You Like It. Then he did Viola, based on Twelfth Night in 2012, and The Princess of France, based on Love's Labor's Lost, back in 2014. Hermia and Helena centers around a pair of modern-day women from Buenos Aires named Carmen and Camilla, instead of Hermia and Helena. When the film opens, Carmen is preparing to finish a fellowship at a research institute in New York City and head back to Argentina. Camilla is said to take her place at the institute, including her apartment, in order to produce a Spanish translation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. For Pinheiro, the foreign world of New York City is like the forest the lovers head into near the beginning of of Shakespeare's dream. It's an unknown place where you can become someone else. Although Carmen and Camilla don't exactly trade lovers in New York City, They do both develop a flirtatious relationship with the Institute's Lucas, and Camilla inherits some of Carmen's other friends along the way. Over the course of our chat, Pinheiro talked eloquently about his experience reading Shakespeare in translation and translating Shakespeare into Spanish himself. He talked about why he loves the Bard's comedies, which he likens to 1930s screwball comedies, and how these stories allowed him to explore new approaches to cinema. Unfortunately, we did this interview by phone, so the sound quality is not perfect. There's a bit of an echo. I have tried to clean it up as much as possible, but um, the quality is going to be a bit lower on this episode, and not just because I'm the one editing instead of our trusty editor, Cam. about Shakespeare that interests you? Why, why is it that sort of all of your films have sort of been borrowing from and inspired by Shakespeare's plays? Mm-hmm. Um, at first, I think that I was interested in Shakespeare through reading it, through reading Shakespeare. So my approach to Shakespeare has to do with 
with my experience as a reader mm. more than as an act, uh, more than as a theater person because I'm not a theater person. Mm. And then I was surprised by the comedies. I was not that acquainted with them. So when I discovered the comedies, I discovered sensitivities that was very close to me. And in those comedies, I found these uh, roles, these female roles, somehow uh, related to the actresses that I was working with and that I keep on working. The idea of theater in cinema seemed to me as a challenge in order to find new ways and new forms for my film narratives. So all those, all those, all these elements push me to having a desire of doing so. I mean, you've basically worked within the comedies. Is that and is that because of the female roles? Um, I, for me, I, I was interested that I, 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 I didn't know much about the, the comedies. Of course, I knew about Midsummer's Night Dream and a little bit about this or that. But then all of a sudden, I found there a word that for me was not that obvious. Uh, you know, it was not uh, it was not so explored. Now, if you say Shakespeare, people would people would mention you. Five, I don't know, four tragedies, or they mention you a comedy. And if they mention you a comedy, they will mention you Midsummer's Night Dream, and will never mention Measure for Measure, or Winter's Tale. I'm talking in very general terms, but I was surprised by how in the shadows some of these comedies were in regard to how much attention the tragedies get. So somehow I wanted to outbalance that, not give a new equilibrium to that. I, I was interested in putting light into words that I found important, that excited me, that connected with me, that connected with my actors, and that I could do something in film. My sensitivity has to do with the comedy. The rhythm of the words had to do with the comedy, and the rhythm of the way I like people talking in films had to do much to do with comedy. My attraction to American cinema, in classical cinema, has to do also with the comedy, and I think that, that there's also there a relationship between when you're talking about how you came to the to the plays through the text, and I'm wondering when, because you're sort of going straight to cinema, how do you think about the sort of cinematic forms and ways of adapting stories that at least started for the stage? First, I don't think that I'm uh, that my are adaptations. I think that I'm just like taking some motifs from the play, and then I do feel that there's an interesting challenge in facing an, another art with another art. We're facing cinema with painting, making cinema fuse and merge with painting or with music or with theater. I do think that puts you to the challenge of it to shoot this way, to shoot this other way, to sustain the shot in, in the character, to cut in that moment, to to how do you put into film all this amount of, of words? Uh, in Herman Helena, how do text can appear in the film? How can you make a word have a weight in the narrative of a film? A word in a literal world, in a literal sense of the word. Not that suddenly that there's words being written in the screen, so we have words that are somehow transforming the plot. All these ideas come from this attraction towards the, the word and the specificity of the word and the nature of the word in terms of its content, but also in terms of its form. And I think that that pushes me to think like new uh, ideas for films. And one, what is the process from reading the play to coming up with this story that's inspired by it? Well, of course, I know the play. I read the play again. I choose which female character I will work with. I immediately think which actress will be doing this role and immediately 
they start to see which perspective, how, which things would I be choosing from, from this, uh, from the play and from this character. In that moment, I keep on reading the text and like thinking motifs that interest me, like the flower motif, mm -hmm. the father figure, uh, the magic aspect, the dream world. There are all these elements that are somehow interesting for me and that I take from the play and put it in my films in different ways, but somehow they cast the father scene somehow comes from, from the play, even though there's not an scene in the in play that is like the one in my film. But in the, in the play, the father figure ages is very important because it's because he wants to get his daughter married in one way that she flies away. So there is this movement set by the father. So the father is very important. So somehow I put in my speech as this daughter somehow also makes a movement that instead of to go away from his father, is the opposite. So I do variations, inversions, repetitions from the motifs that I extract from the play. That's why they're not adaptations, because I'm not following it. I'm just like getting uh, the, the raw materials in order to do my own film. One of the similarities between Hermia and Helena and Midsummer Night's Dream is this idea of the women changing places. In the play, it goes from one woman having both men chasing after her to Helena having both men chasing after her and in your film it's yes. it's more that they you know they trade lives yeah, yeah there's an idea of movement going to the forest or moving away from your country that I took as a motif that I wanted to explore that's why I said that this a film that was in two countries it was not the fact that Midsummer's my dream would be that not that it's also about people moving and moving also in terms of their sentimental relationships there is all this uh, ring of desire like how one character corresponds sentimentally to the other and how that can change very arbitrarily. But somehow I think that, that those, this element that can be traced in many other Shakespeare's plays is something that connects with my sensitivity and that I enjoy for making my own narrative. In Herman Helena, I always choose the sentimental line. Um, how did you think about sort of the move to New York City as kind of like the move into the forest? The move into what you don't know, mm. the unknown, to an unstable place place where you are not yourself, a place where you have to transform yourself. It gives you the possibility to change your personality in a way, to change your desires and the idea of something unexplored and new. I took it in that sense. She's three different, she's three different people in New York. It depends in which story you are, she somehow changes. Camille is not the same when she's with Danielle, and mm. she's not the same when she's with her father, and she's not the same when she's with Greg. She changes. So there is this idea of like, redefining yourself through the action of moving somewhere else. I'm wondering a bit about some of the ways that you were thinking about representing this kind of dreamlike state. One thing that really stood out to me was near the beginning of the film, you have one of the characters uh, walks into the the subway in Buenos Aires and comes out in New York City. So like transitions or games or plays that I do know it's uh, the idea that it doesn't, that rhythm is more important than plot, than the logic, the rational logic of the plot. It's much more important than she leaves and then she comes and, and that you connect to the subway. And then you see the difference between the subway, the entrance of the subway in New York and the entrance of the subway in Buenos Aires, and that somehow tells something about the two cities. Even though it's not like a sociological essay, it's a difference that you see from one moment to the other. It's about that connection. It's about transit. It's a film about transit, about coming and going. It was logical to do that. It's the logic of the, of the own film. 
It doesn't follow the perfect rationality logic, but just another sort of logic that is more written. I tell how she came back in one cut, and that's it. I don't need to explain because that would kill the rhythm of the film. I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about the sort of fade-ins and fade-outs that you've got over where you're overlaying different images. That was a possibility. For me, that is a little bit an image of the film and an image of someone that lives in two places. If you live in two places, you live in... No, you don't live only in New York. You also live in Buenos Aires while you live in New York. So everything is merged. So that's why I like the idea of the, of the fade and the superimpositions that it's one image that is composed from many images. But it's not that there's many images, it's just an image of many. So it's very impure. When you live somewhere else, it's not that you abandon the place that you left behind, but you have it in you and you have it in, in the new place. So everything gets, everything gets merged, mixed. Everything gets uh, in a state of impurity that I like. So I feel that the, the fate and the, and the superpositions somehow work in that way. It's not a, a metaphor, it's not like, oh, it's something that I find that is direct, it's some, a, a form, a possible form. But I haven't explored much, and the theory doesn't explore that much, not the possibilities of superpositions. So I wanted to see, see what, what it can produce. You were talking before about figuring out how to put the text on screen. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about all of your films have had Shakespeare in translation, but in this it's actually the text. The story is about somebody who's translating it. This is my fourth Shakespeare film, and this is the first that I worked in English. I felt that I needed to do a film in English because I was working with Shakespeare, but to approach the English language in Shakespeare somehow. Mm. So when a film that was going to take place in two places, Argentina and the States, I thought that it was that translation could be the topic. In the previous film it was radio, in the other two was theater. So as I'm doing these films that are all around, like Shakespeare, the comedy, the women, these same sort of actors, with my with the same crew, I have to change some elements in order to not repeat myself. I always try to think different ways of how I will approach the Shakespeare. Last time was through the idea of that radio play, that they're doing a radio play. In the previous movie it was about rehearsal in theater, so in this one was translation, something away from theater. I wanted to work with words. I was curious about how words could work in regards with the image, you know, how, how that thing works. What, is, what does it produce? There's something also very pure in there. Now there's something very, like, short circuits, what happens when you put text in a, on the screen. It's not like a natural thing. I like that unnaturalness that it has. It's mm -hmm. not unnatural like how Shakespeare uh, decides to put his words in his page. There's something about the artists that I enjoy. Comedies are all about artists. So I think that there's connections and moods and tones that that resonate in, in these decisions. But all these decisions are not made only because of one thing, but because of many of these things that are kind of uh, resonating. And what I do is I vary, I change, I third again. Oh, with every of these uh, decisions, it's the same sort of process. Also, in regard to the idea of the fate and positions, I do think that the translation, the work of the translator is a little bit like that. You transform one, one language to the other, but then there's something always that remains, and, or there's always a possibility of changing, of redoing the translation. So the translation is never something fixed, it's never something clear, it's never something pure, it's always something impure, as an image produced by many images at the same time. Sometimes there's a constant movement that you cannot fully grasp and say, oh, this is the best translation. Because there will be always another translation possible. I felt that there was a spirit around that, with a spirit around the sense of 
the, the joyfulness of impurity. I'm wondering a bit about your own experience with Shakespeare in translation. And did you first encounter the play in English or in Spanish? First in Spanish, of course. And I approached them because there were like new uh, Latin American translations. So these new translations didn't have no notations and didn't have the way the older translations, they're not made from the Spanish from Spain, that it's a little bit different from the Spanish from Argentina, for example, or from right. Latin America. It was like Latin American writers and poets right doing the translations. It was very dynamic, very rich, very contemporary, and very composed. I think that if I would have grabbed the old translations from the 50s or 60s, I wouldn't have uh, been so interested. I would have felt that Shakespeare was something very far away. After uh, after reading in Spanish, I read them in English. When I have to do my own work, I, I did my own translations. I work around those Latin American translations and then rework them from there, like mixing things, taking my own decisions, seeing the English, the decisions that the translators have done, and if I like them or not, and, and so on. I was just watching Viola. I was noticing that the yes. subtitles don't seem to be, they're not a translation of the translation they just seem to be the text itself because I can because I translate I can change but if it's in English I wouldn't dare to change Shakespeare's words but as a translator I have to there's no other way out you have to change those words because you're putting them in Spanish but if it's in English I wouldn't dare to touch Shakespeare's words I will keep them as they are that's something that I learned because in my first year in Rosalinda, I did change it and I was not happy with what we did. I thought that that was wrong. So that's also why I keep on making these films about Shakespeare. I don't think that in one film I exhaust all the research and all the possibilities and all the things that I have to learn through Shakespeare. That's why I keep on making more and more. It's like a translation thing. You can always keep on translating. You could always have a new version of the translation. And I think that my relationship with Shakespeare and cinema is like that. I can always do another way in this relationship between theater and cinema. You know, there's always a new form to explore with Shakespeare, and it's not only like in one film that I, I exhausted. How has your approach to translation changed across your films? Uh, for me, it's very important to listen to what I translate, to listen it in the in the word in the mouth of the actors, and I'm willing to change whatever I see that not sound sounding right. I do like not to oversimplify it, of course. I try to keep the complexity of of the syntaxes, the way the words are being put in, in the order in which words are being put, that is peculiar in the case of Shakespeare. So I try to use words that may not be complex or like too uh, far away from what we can understand smoothly, but then I try to put those words in a way that is a little bit, uh, that is not uh, nat- naturalist. No, I, I don't like the things to be naturalist because Shakespeare is not. So, but at the same time, I don't want to be using some words or some constructions, some verb constructions that would somehow take it away from life. But it's again, it's this very strange tension and balance between artifice and naturalism that I try to sustain. I don't try, I don't want to 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 fall into full naturalism because I want it's not a, like it's not like in a mumble film that the people talk as they talk as if they would be like pretending to be natural. No no, I, I want them to be talking in a complex way, but then I don't want it to cut the flow of the rhythm. So that's I very much inspired by the comedies from the from the thirties. 
you know, like Captain Kirkman, the way she talks, the way she delivers the line. She was a great history actress. There's something there in the way of to treat the words as music, as a rhythm. For doing that, you cannot be fully naturalist. You know, you need to have a, a compositional aspect, you know, a, a mystical element. But I think that you can see that in the film, especially when there are two people talking, how they relate. Sometimes it's that if they don't, you don't fully understand what they're saying, you just follow the rhythm. But then you understand also what they say. So. I'm wondering how that ends up translating to working with the actors. And are, Do the actors that you work with, do they have experience with performing Shakespeare in translation? Some of them have, some others don't. It's true that when I started these films, I was invited to do a play, and I did as a teacher, a collage. They, 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 well, they talk in viola, in viola there's a moment that they talk about a play that they're doing. Well, that play that they refer to is a play that we did. A 40-minute play in which there was this, this uh, selection of scenes from Shakespeare all put together and in that you wouldn't know when they change from one place to the other because I was just following the sentimental line of the characters. Somehow there's a theme that is followed. In the first act, the second act, the third act, the fourth act, and the fifth act from different plays, if you put them all together and change the names, you can somehow feel that it's the same play. And we did that for a couple of months, so they do have that experience, we did have that experience. And then they also, they're all very professional actresses, but they work in the in theater in Buenos Aires, so they do have a relationship with theater, very, very strong. Some of them are also directors and novelists. They're not Shakespeare actors, but some of them, but we have been through the experience of playing around Shakespeare. They're not uh, Shakespeare actors as you considered in the in the English English tradition. Right. Here, if you're an actor, you go through Shakespeare, no, you're not. And you go through Shakespeare in Spanish, but not as strongly as here. That was something very curious for me when I moved here, that there's another approach. It means something else to do Shakespeare here in English. I mean, in Argentina, it's different. Maybe Shakespeare has other sort of competition or competitors in Spanish-speaking countries. My brief, my little experience showed me that, yeah, Shakespeare is the big thing for an actor when he's starting and preparing and everybody has to go through it. And maybe in other approaches, in other territories, it's not that strong. It exists, of course, but then there's others, you know, others like in Spanish, uh, uh, poets, or, you know, there's, there's many others. Because you're looking at Shakespeare through, through you know, mixing it with theater or radio or painting, how does that come together and affect sort of how you're thinking about the plays and then how that affects your filmmaking? Putting the, the, the stories in connection with other arts pushed me into finding new forms. As I, a few minutes ago, for me, facing other arts pushes me to find new, new ways for cinema. No, if I have to think about painting, I try to think how can I include painting, and it can be a very literal way of including painting by going to the museum and putting it as a set, and then putting a close-up to the to the painting, or even like taking the topic or the you know, the theme of it of painting and working around it, taking characters out of it. Are these objects of art are there in order to stimulate and to make the form move forward? Ways that I haven't experienced before. So it's just keeping the form move forward. In each film, you have different approaches. Suddenly, the painting can become a postcard, and postcard is an element, an object of the plot, as a symbol of somebody else. Maybe yeah, in the painting, no, I'm, I'm very much thinking here in, in the Prince of France, like my previous thing to Hermit Heaven, no? But mm-hmm. kind of the overall painting, somehow one of those paintings inspired the whole plot of the film. The idea of a circle of, of memes surrounding 
uh, satire and being taken down. I feel that in Princess of Sun there is also this circle of women taking down the main character of the, of the film. So there's movement, one girl that gives the hand to each other and that they all look alike. No, they somehow are the same person, the same spirit, and a center that is the man that is being taken down. Because usually, suffers are raised in the names. I mean, the painting used to be opposite, and I, in my sense, I also think that there is something similar in that inversion of roles, of, of power, in the power struggle between sexes. There's also in theater this, this desire to put a lot of words in film, but words are also part of cinema. They're not anti-cinema, they're cinema also. It's just a matter of understanding how can we deal with it. How can it become cinematic? You know? How can it become photogenic? Something interesting to watch, someone talking, someone listening to someone talking. Those are interesting elements. What happens if you, stay, you keep watching, the camera focuses on a close-up of someone that listens? That's something that you don't see in theater, because in theater you can't see someone listening, but you will be immediately taken to the person talking. You can't do the exercise of looking at someone all the time, only one actor, but it's something you have to force yourself. In theater, you would follow much more all the, all the staging and also the work. Who talks has your attention, the person who talks. You can deconstruct that, but not fully. In cinema, with framing, I can keep myself in one corner, watching always to the same character, like talking and receiving the text. And I think that that gives him a different way of understanding the scene, a different way of understanding rhythm in cinema. Because I keep myself so close to theater, I found a new way for cinema. Nothing belongs to theater, even though it comes from theater. Because in theater, you, you can have that experience. As you've been making more films relating to Shakespeare, I'm wondering what your interaction has been with Shakespeare and performance. Because, of course, you can go see productions of Shakespeare, you can watch movies that have been made of Shakespeare, and then there's also radio plays of Shakespeare, and these are all sort of forms that you've worked with. I go, but I don't go systematically. I go systematically to the cinema. To the theater I go, but I don't go a lot. I went before much more, now I go less. It meant there's groups that I like. I, I, I enjoy very much how the booster group works around Shakespeare uh, here in New York. I very much appreciate that. And then if I'm around, I tend to catch the plays that I, the comedies that, I, that I'm interested in. I, I go, but it's not that I'm systematic. That's why I told you that it's not that I come from theater. Even if I'm working with Shakespeare, it's not that I come from theater. I come from, from, from cinema, from the experience of reading it. Then, of course, I expose myself to, to theater, but it's not that uh, I do it systematically. You gave this really wonderful example about a close-up of somebody listening and how that's something that you can't get in theater. And I'm sort of wondering how you get those sorts of ideas and think this is a different way of telling it or this is how it would be told otherwise. Very paradoxically, I, I knew about this when I did the play. When I did theater and enjoyed theater so much, I understood this movement, how the spectator watches theater. And suddenly one day I had to record for, I had to tape the play for the record, for the institution that told us to do the thing. They asked us to record the play. Mm. And I did the recording and suddenly one of the cameras were, was all the time with one character. And when I was editing, suddenly I thought, I thought, oh, everything is not very interesting. Instead of seeing the character, you see the actor playing the character. And then it's realism again. You, you watch an actor playing the, the role. And for me, that was much more important than the frame pretending that that actor was actually the role, was actually Viola. There was something about the way that, that cinema, a realist art, an art that works 
towards realism. Suddenly, when you're forcing certain elements or certain positions into this idea of suddenly this character is Viola. No, it's not Viola. It's an actress playing Viola. And when you go to the theater, you know that. And as Arthur's playing, cinema tends to not make us think about that. My cinema, when I talk about artifice, so I talk about that. I, I, and the photogenic of people talking, the joy of watching an actor play. And that is my approach to realism in cinema. I believe in her because she shows me the mask, that she's wearing a mask. And I do think that there's, I do think that Shakespeare also were, had some of these ideas. Are you still sort of playing with ideas that you came up with when you were directing theater or? No, I think that I evolved. I think that this is something very close to Viola. And in each film, the thing changes. In each play, in each film, it keeps on changing. Because I don't exhaust, I try not to repeat that so much. This spirit and this joy for artists that I think that continues all the sequence of the Greg character, it shows that, by in Hermann Helena. This joy for artifice, I think that it is something that goes all, all through the films. The decisions are a little different in each case, or the cases are different. Do you have an idea of what sort of play you might want to work with next? Yes, I'm working with a Spanish filmmaker that is a colleague of mine. We're going to do Tempest. We're going to work in the landscape, so we're moving out from theater and so on, you know, to move to the landscape of an island and working around the character of Ariel. So we're also like in a more, even in, yeah, this more ambiguous role of Shakespeare that is Ariel. So it's a film about landscape and invisibility. So I'm moving into a very different territory now. So yeah, Shakespeare keeps on bringing me ideas and possibilities for new films and new forms. Would you consider going back to plays that you've already worked on? Sometimes I think that it would be fun to redo the first film, Rosalinda. As you like, it is the play that I enjoy the most. And I think that after many years that they went by, it would be fun to capture how time has gone by in, in, and somehow show two things together, maybe 10 years apart from each other, with the same actors, doing the same roles, but with different ideas now. I, I do think that this, this cycle of Shakespeare that I'm doing should finish with a remake of the first, as it would be, you know, this figure of the snake that bites its tail. You have this image of a, a snake that eats her own tail, like a circle that closes itself. Yeah. I like this image. I like this. The circle closes while it when somehow it eats itself <laughs> by, in this case, the idea of remaking the first play. But we'll see, we'll see. I don't know if we'll ever do it, but it's an idea that I, I've been having for a long time. All right, well, great. Um, thank you so much. Uh, no, thank you, Alex. It's been very, very nice to talk to you. that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Um, We'll be back sometime soon uh, in the next couple of weeks with episodes on uh, Mondays and and or Fridays. Um, We'll keep you posted. In the meantime, you can check us out on Twitter at 21st Folio. That's 2-1-S-T-F-O-L-I-O, where we'll be posting updates on when the next episodes will be airing and other interesting Shakespeare-related news. Or you can find us on our website at 21stfolio.com. That's 21stfolio.com. 